those great songs of praise in preparation for our, our time this morning. We're praising the Lord. And here at the Rock Community Church, it is the second Sunday of each month where we've set aside to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. As elders, we want the Lord's Supper to be the centerpiece of these services, not something that's just tacked on at the end that we do because it's the second Sunday of the month. It's just something we do. And that's not what we want to happen here. And so the messages on these Sundays are actually written with the Lord's Supper in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, the Apostle Paul warned the church of God, which is in Corinth, not to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. In other words, they're not to be flippant or thoughtless, just going through the motions. No, we're to come thoughtfully, respectfully, carefully. It's to be a sobering time as we prepare to participate together in the remembrance of him. And so with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn with me, first of all, to Exodus chapter 20. Some of you will recognize that reference as the place where we find the, the Ten Commandments, or more literally, the Ten Words. They're also repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, but we want to read this rendition in Exodus chapter 20. So if you'll stand with me, those who are able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning. Beginning at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name the Lord your God in vain, for God will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Allow me to lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for this clear presentation of your expectations, a standard that indicates what you require for relationship with you. You are righteous, consistently perfect in everything that you do and say. And as a result, this written word of God becomes our fail-safe guide. In fact, to borrow the words of the psalmist, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Provides all the direction we need for life and godliness. So we pause now to invite your spirit, who inspired men of old to write exactly what you wanted to reveal about your person, your plans, your purposes, and even your perspectives. May that same spirit now illumine our minds so that we can understand. Not just understand, but then empower us so that we can obey this transformative word that is sharper than a surgeon's scalpel, cutting to the heart of the matter, dealing with root causes rather than trying to come up with coping strategies for the symptoms that that so often plague us. Thank you for this objective, authoritative, written revelation of truth. We've come and prayed these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So allow me to begin with a question this morning. We've just read the Ten Commandments, and so I'm just wondering, how are you all doing? How are you doing with the standard that God requires for a relationship with himself? Is there anything in your life that takes precedent over your relationship with God? Have you made idols for yourself? Are there things in your life that have replaced your worship of God? Do you ever misuse the name of the Lord your God? Do you remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Do you honor your father and your mother? Do you commit murder? How about adultery? Do you steal? Do you give false testimony? Do you ever find yourself coveting the possessions of others? Interesting, Jesus referenced these very commands in an encounter reported in Matthew chapter 19. You may want to turn there with me to Matthew chapter 19. 
beginning at verse 16. This is clearly a memorable event in Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, so memorable that all three synoptic Gospels report this event. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they sat down to write the account of Jesus' life and ministry, included this event. It was a memorable event. It took place between Jesus and a rich young ruler. That's how it's titled. This paragraph is titled in my version of the NASB. The Rich Young Ruler. I'm going to start reading at verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to account, enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The episode immediately following this story provides an inter interesting contrast. The in the preceding story, Jesus' disciples, you'll remember, are rebuking those who are bringing little children to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Perhaps they saw it as a, a waste of their teacher's time. But Jesus intervened and corrected them. Can you imagine being one of the disciples that day? You think you're doing the right thing. All of a sudden you get spanked. Maybe we're surprised, confused, hurt. I'm thinking they would have been equally surprised when Jesus did not embrace this young man who owned much property. He embraced the distraction of children and he repelled a rich young ruler. Interesting. A young man who had come to Jesus looking for some kind of assurance that he would live in God's presence forever. That's what he was asking by that question. What good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Life in God's presence forever. And notice Jesus' final response to this young man in verse 21. If you wish to be complete, 
Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Mark's account of this same incident includes a significant phrase not found here in Matthew chapter 19. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, begins with, Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And because of his love for him, he gave him this assignment that would help him to discover what his present understanding of the law failed to expose. You see, and here is my point. Jesus did not introduce the law to show this young man how to be saved, but to show him that he desperately needed to be saved. Jesus' love for this rich young ruler compelled him to provide a a supplemental assignment in hopes of accomplishing what the law had failed to do in this young man's life. He wanted him to discover his biggest problem and his greatest need. And it just so happens that this young ruler's biggest problem and greatest need is your biggest problem and greatest need. It's my biggest problem and greatest need. Indeed, it's humanity's biggest problem and greatest need. Namely, it's our inability to live up to the standard that God requires for relationship with himself. Last month, in preparation for the Lord's Supper, the message focused on Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Some of you may even remember that we talked about, or this passage really focused on the righteousness of God and we are able to identify five reflections on the righteousness of God as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper. The righteousness of God is knowable. It's accessible, essential. It comes as a gift, and it is demonstrated. In other words, it's, it's practical. It's not just a theory. The righteousness of God is concrete It's real, and it's relevant. But what I want you to look at, Romans chapter 3, look at verses 19 and 20. Two verses that preceded the verses that we were focused on last month. Beginning at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You may want to underline or highlight that last phrase. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That, beloved, is the purpose of the law. It exposes sin. 
in your life and in my life. And so the primary reason for God's punishment of sin is not to act as a deterrent. It's not even to act as a warning, although both of those things happen. The primary purpose that God punishes sin is because his righteousness demands it. He cannot be a righteous God and make excuses for or ignore or sweep our sin under the carpet, so to speak. In fact, the Apostle Paul affirms the same in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the law schools us, teaches us. The law was never intended to be a means of, of earning a relationship with God. Never. It exposes our inability. It enlightens us to what we can discover so that we can discover our biggest problem and our greatest need, which is our failure to live up to that standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with himself. And the Bible, of course, refers to that failure as sin. Do you know, now understand how misdirected that rich young ruler really was? And how merciful and gracious and loving Jesus was to give him a second chance to figure it all out. And he did that because Jesus knew that it is absolutely essential that we own our biggest problem and our greatest need personally, each one of us. Now that was all introduction. It's a rather lengthy introduction, but it introduces us to the verse that I'd like us to focus on as we prepare to participate at the Lord's Supper. It's found in Romans chapter 5. Just turn over a couple of pages to Romans chapter 5, and it's verse 12. But allow me to begin, well, I want to read it in context, so allow me to begin at Romans chapter 5, verse 8, a very familiar verse of Scripture. Romans chapter 5, and beginning at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now ha have now received the reconciliation. Here's our verse. Therefore, just as through one man sin, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So let's put verse 12 under the microscope for just a few moments. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. What does that phrase tell us? Sin's origin, where it comes from. It all began with Adam. And Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 tells the story. And chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, reads as follows. Then the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And you know the story. Genesis chapter 3 describes how Eve is deceived by a serpent. She eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A clear and direct violation of what God had told Adam not to do. But Eve was deceived by a crafty serpent. Adam, on the other hand, made a conscious, deliberate choice to join Eve, his wife, in her act of disobedience. And so he too ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that, my friends, is what sin looks like. Doing what God told them explicitly not to do. The Garden of Eden became the time and place where sin entered into the world. Sin's origin, the Garden of Eden. Look at the next phrase in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Here we have sin's consequences. Death. Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to disobey God's clear and explicit commandment, prohibition, to sin, and as a result, they reaped God's clear consequence. You will surely die. This should not have surprised them. We've already read Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it, eat from it, you will surely die. And they did. Spiritually, they died immediately. Their relationship with God was altered. They no longer enjoyed an intimate 
close relationship with their creator God. In fact, they tried to hide from him. Eventually, they would also die physically. Death is a consequence of sin. Sin results in death both physically and spiritually. Following Cynthia's mom's funeral and internment services, Josiah and Patricia and baby Josephine decided to drop by our house on the way back to Oakville. We had an interesting conversation, to say the least. The pastor who spoke, their pastor who spoke at the funeral service, began or by, I don't know, taking some initiatives that would really focus the whole day on the celebration of Jane's life. And he talked about, well, he asked the audience to do a hoopla at the beginning of the service, and then he talked about a graduation ceremony that he attended he had attended earlier that, that week. Josiah challenged all of that as he sat in our living room, just kind of reflecting and, and thinking out loud. He wondered if we should be celebrating life when reality, and I'm using his words, death won today. Then he quoted Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. And he wondered if, as Christ followers, we should be trying to soften the pain and, and the sense of loss by referring to funerals as a celebration of life. He suggested for the sake of the gospel, we might be better off acknowledging that this is the consequence of sin. But the one thing he said that sets us apart as followers of Jesus is that we grieve with the hope of a future resurrection. But today, we grieve the results of sin. That's not to say that our good memories and wonderful times that we spent together don't sustain us through those difficult days. But every funeral that you and I attend should be a constant reminder of sin's consequence. You will surely die. And they did. And so will I. And so will you. It's the unavoidable consequence of sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 continues. Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. What's that last phrase tell you? And so death spread to all men because all sinned. I'd like to suggest that it's sin's 
reach. This is where it really gets personal. That little word so translates a Greek word that could have been translated thus or in this way. So the verse, the phrase could have read, in this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, through the sin of Adam, we all died because we all sinned. Notice the tense of the verb. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Indicates that something took place in the past. But how is that possible? That we, everyone sinned at the time when Paul was writing Romans chapter 5, verse 12. You and I weren't even born. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, offers the following explanation. This idea that all men sinned means that God thought of us all as having sinned when Adam disobeyed. And look at the next few verses in Romans chapter 5. Notice verses 13 and 14. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. What's that saying? The Apostle Paul is pointing out that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, when the people received this law of God, according to verse 13, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. The New Living Translation offers this, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. And yet, Paul argues that although there was no law to break, they still did not escape the consequence of Adam's sin. Every person between Adam and the giving of the law experienced a physical death. They died. Even though their sin did not involve the breaking of the law specifically, because the law had not yet been given, as far as God was concerned, they had sinned in Adam. Drop down the page in Romans chapter 5 to verse 18. So then, as, though one, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even though one act of right, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19, for as, though, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. You may be thinking, wait a minute, that's just not fair. Why should I have to bear the consequences of Adam and Eve's deliberate disobedience? 
And what Paul's saying is, be careful. Be careful. That knife cuts both ways. It's two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. Just as Adam's sin brings condemnation to all, Jesus Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness as we believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, and begin trusting him alone for our salvation. But there's more. We not only inherit the guilt as a result of Adam's sin, we also inherit a sin nature. Sometimes referred to as the total depravity of man or the depravity of man. It does not mean that humans are as bad as they can possibly be. Although some seem to be trying really hard. But what it does mean is that sin permeates every part of us. Every nook and cranny. The way we think. The way we act and react. Our words and our deeds. Our thoughts and our attitudes. Our hopes and our dreams. Our priorities and our values. All tainted, infected by sin. You could say that we're broken. We're born broken. In fact, King David in Psalm 51 laments his brokenness. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. New Living Translation reads, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. A sinner at conception. And so we, we sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Beloved, we are born with a heart problem. Every part of our being is infected by sin. And the law turns the lights on so that we can see ourselves for who we truly are. That's why the gospel is never served by minimizing or downplaying or excusing or compromising on the law of God. Some of you may remember John Bunyan's 1678 famous allegory titled The Pilgrim's Progress. The main character in the alligator allegory is Christian and through the allegory, Christian finds this burden of sin growing increasingly heavy as he begins to understand God's requirements. As he increases in his understanding, the burden gets heavier and heavier. May all of us, each one of us, feel the burden, the weight of our sin for which Jesus was willing to die. The law enlightens us so that we can see our biggest problem and our greatest need. It enables us to see ourselves for who we truly are, 
on the inside. People who are born with sin natures that if left to ourselves, well, Romans chapter 3 makes it pretty clear. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Folks, that's who we truly are. That is how God sees us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners by nature, and as a result, we sin. It is who we are, and it is what we do as a result of who we are. Sin. Every one of us. And that's the truth. And we need to know that and own that if we ever hope to find healing and help. And I know that that's a whole lot easier said than done. Jeremiah, we have deceitful hearts. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. I want to begin reading at verse 36. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man were a prophet. He would know who and what sort of person this woman who is. This woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender who had two debtors owed, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. 
but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may want to take that highlighter and pen again and underline that phrase in verse 47. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who sins, who is forgiven little, loves little. Beloved, we can own our greatest problem and our greatest need, knowing that God is offering a forgiveness that frees us not only from the burden of that sin, but empowers us with a greater love and appreciation for him. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been forgiven little, loves a little. And it is that love for God that compels us to live the lives of extravagant obedience and service. An expression of love for him, empowered by the power of his indwelling spirit for his glory, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Which means, let it be so. Amen. And so as we come to the table this morning, the scripture invites us, invites all of us, who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation to participate. And so do we. But as we come, beloved, let us be conscious of our unworthiness and help us not to minimize our failure, the sin in our lives. We need to own that. And as we proclaim the gospel, do not minimize the law, the requirements that God has set for relationship with him. People need to be crushed by those requirements and come to that point in their life when they just throw up their hands and say, I can't do it. And then we pray that God would give them a new heart. That is the message of salvation. Nothing more and nothing less. In light of the message this morning, I want to invite us to come humbly and with broken and contrite spirits, with a greater awareness of our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness, I want us to approach this, this time with a brand new sense, the gift, the mercy of God, as we do this in remembrance of him.
And as we do it, may our love for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just overflow in each one of our hearts so that we will want to live our lives in ways that will reflect a desire to be obedient and serve his plans and purposes to the very best of our ability. Would you be free? Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power. Power. Wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. I invite you to sing it as you mean it. Sing it as if you mean it, as you really believe it. Musicians, please come.